0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: Should Hamilton go after Amazon? Uh, Amazon has already announced they're looking for a second North American headquarters. And a number of Canadian cities uh, are jumping up and down saying, pick me, pick me, pick me, for a variety of reasons. And uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger signaled over the weekend that uh, Hamilton has an interest in doing this. Uh, is it worthwhile? What's the upside? What's the downside? Well, let's ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degout School of Business at McMaster University, who joins us in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Good to see you today. My pleasure, Bill. Uh, Amazon, big fish?
0: Huge fish. So uh, this story broke last week, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, that Amazon is looking to build a second headquarters. Right now it's headquartered in Seattle, and if you were to visit it, it would look more like McMaster University. In other words, it's not one gigantic building like the Pentagon in Washington. It's a campus in which there's a collection of buildings, um, and they just feel, A, that they're landlocked there, that they don't have any more room to expand there, and B... I think Jeff Bezos thinks they should just broaden their horizons, not be just in Seattle, but go other places. Now, uh, Big Fish, 50,000 jobs ultimately could come to this new headquarters too. It won't be initially. It'll be something smaller, but again, more buildings could be added. In their time in Seattle, the construction of – properties at their Seattle campus have totaled $38 billion. That's with a B, $38 billion. So whoever wins this, it's like winning the lottery. Uh, you're you're going to be in tune for not only a lot of jobs, but a lot of tax revenue, a lot of construction revenue. And then last but not least is that the kind of jobs and the kind of businesses is, is one that gets many cities excited. Why? Well, uh, these are going to be jobs that don't pollute. We're not talking about building a, you know, I don't mean to be negative about this, but a a blast furnace or a steel furnace, we're not going to see big honking uh, uh, chimneys uh, spouting out anything. So these are mind workers, brain workers, uh, intelligent workers working at computers and other things like this, clean, relatively clean, High high paying, all those things that people love to see
1: as an employer. So it would be like winning the lottery. All right, so this is this is the Powerball then of economic development. Exactly. How do you, how do you qualify for a ticket? <laughs> yeah. Well, so
0: <clears throat> let me let me just throw out the first thing and why you asked at the beginning: Should Hamilton be going after this? In a way, we don't qualify. So the nice people at uh, Amazon put out four criterion for this. One of their first criterion was they wanted cities that had at least one million people in there to bid. Now, I know what Hamilton's going to do. First thing we're going to say is, well, wait a minute, we're the census metropolitan area of Hamilton, so we'll wrap our arms around Burlington and say there's 750,000 people in that area and throw in Grimsby. But also, we are connected at the hip with Oakville, Mississauga, and Toronto. You can't really tell where one city ends, the next city begins. So we'll very quickly point out that we're in a region of you know six to eight million people so we're going to try to qualify that but Amazon said they only wanted to entertain bids from cities of at least a million people they were also looking for cities where there were some other technology companies and and yes Hamilton has some small technology companies here but we don't really have anyone I can point to like a Samsung or a Sony or somebody Mm -hmm. who's already got a facility here and say you'd be joining your brothers and sisters down the road so I think it's a stretch uh, for, for Hamilton to qualify. In fact, in Canada, if they were going to entertain bids, um, I think first the most likely one, just for a logistic standpoint, would be just going north of the border to Vancouver, then they might certainly consider Toronto. Oddly, I think Montreal, could be considered. I'm just not clear how much the the language question would play into Amazon's concerns. Meanwhile, south of the border, there'd be all kinds of American cities. And unfortunately, Bill, the way this goes is in the United States, they're also going to throw some financial incentives. We in Canada like to, to encourage a business to come here without giving away the farm. In other words, we're not going to give you the land. We're not going to waive taxes for 10 years to to desperately get you to the area. But there would be parts of the United States Let's start with Detroit as an example, who would be so thrilled to have an Amazon come in and replace
1: what had been the car manufacturing base. I, I would say that Hamilton would be well down on the list. Would any Canadian city even qualify then? I mean, you know, everybody's jumping up and down here. And, and we've heard these stories, Marvin, but it's from the Canadian perspective. If this is an open competition, I, I don't even see how that we're even going to get much consideration. Right. So, again, the and question— And I mean any Canadian city. No, that's
0: fair enough. And, and so the question is, when he made this announcement, Mr. Bezos, the CEO— Uh, said they are looking for a North American headquarters. So in theory, Mexico could also come into it. And of course, in theory, Canada could come into it. Now, how much is he using the term North American, but that's code for really just American? I don't know. And so I, I would think... You know, I would throw Toronto, Vancouver into a list, but I would also think places like uh, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, fourth largest city, Houston. This could actually be a wonderful good news story if suddenly Amazon said we're going to locate to Houston after Harvey had come by. Uh, I don't think New York. I'm not thinking Chicago. I'm not thinking San Francisco or L.A., but there would be some of these other Midwestern cities that that could uh, go after this and do quite
1: well. Yeah, because they're talking about uh, intricate transit systems. They want public transit systems. They, but the companion piece is, is something that I find intriguing. Uh, and what cities, then, if, if you were to narrow it down and say, oh, let's look at this criterion by criterion, that already have a, a major tech presence? And, 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 again, forget about the Silicon Valley, because I don't think they're just going to go down the coast. But, but, who around has that sort of capability already that they could say, "Yeah, come on over here, we're doing that already
0: yeah, and that's and that's the really good question and he didn't rank or prioritize the four criteria, he didn't say. how how he was defining some of these criteria. I I actually think this is simply – I mentioned the word lottery. Another word I could phrase for is like a game show. So I I suspect what's going to happen is they will have some period for letters of interest to be submitted. Then they'll probably publicly release some sort of a short list, like the way the Olympic Committee does, to say, well, we've boiled it down to these, let's say, ten cities. And then it's like The Bachelor. We're going to go on some kind of a tour. And you get a rose, you don't get a rose. And ultimately, (laughs) they'll win something. Part of this also is that Amazon scares people. Um, How so? Well, uh, you mentioned my colleague Nick Bontas. I mean, Nick certainly subscribes to the view that within ten years, uh, retail could actually be dead the way we know it, and that Amazon is going to be this behemoth that we buy everything from. That they now that they've got bought Whole Foods, they've gotten into the grocery business. Of course, they started with books and and uh, CDs, music that way, but they've gotten into clothes, they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and if you simply extrapolate their sales growth over the last 20 years, and you do that then 20 years into the future, my God, you know nothing else will be around. Now, I I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to hit some point.
1: (laughs) Tell that to Sears, but (laughs) okay.
0: (laughs) Well, Sears, fair enough, but I I think somebody like a Walmart's got a couple of things to say about this. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: So So, uh, to that point, though, Marvin, here's the question. Do you want to say, my God, we were part of that terrible thing that was responsible for that? Or do you want to say, that's the boat we better get on right now because yeah. that's that's the one that's going to survive?
0: Well, and I think this is what most most people are saying. Uh, and, and again, frankly, uh, if you were a city like Toronto, this would, again, diversify your work base. If it were to come to Hamilton, let's just go the other side. What if we were to win the lottery and it was to come here? 50,000 jobs. My God, this would be the biggest employer in the history of Hamilton. It's bigger even than those two steel mills at their peak in the early 1950s and, and 60s. Um, you, would, you would then tie your community's health, economic health, good or bad, to this one major employer. I would be much happier getting a piece of Amazon than getting the whole pie, it would just dominate our economic landscape.
1: All right. So here's a question, and, and here I am already negotiating with these guys. Uh, I'm not even sure if this is the right thing to do. Why not? Why not a, a consolidated bid between Hamilton and KW? There'd
0: be nothing wrong with that.
1: I, I mean, the tech expertise is there. It's it's developing here. I mean, we've done pretty well over the last eight or ten years. And you're right. We're still, a, you know, we're taking baby steps here, but we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. KW, uh, notwithstanding the fact that people seem to think BlackBerry's off the map, they're not, and there's a lot of other stuff going on there right now, it would seem to me that if we said, look, we'll tag team on this and we'll share the campuses, I mean, there's a lot of jobs there, uh, that could be a win-win, and it might be attractive to those guys. It, it could be. Now, uh,
0: again, just to play devil's advocate for a second, I'm just not quite sure if I was Kitchener-Waterloo, if I was going to partner with somebody, why would it be us as opposed to, say, London-Ontario or... or move up the road to Milton. Uh, But uh, the idea of some sort of a joint bid from a region, the way we do in uh, North Carolina, they have this thing they call the economic triangle, Raleigh, Durham, some other places, any one on their own, it doesn't stand out. But when you put them together as a trio, suddenly it becomes much more interesting. I think that would be a very interesting thing for us to pursue. So if I was... Not just the mayor, but the head of economic development, to call our neighbors up the road, and whether it's Milton or uh, Kitchener-Waterloo, and say, "Let's talk about some sort of a joint, a joint bid." And, and frankly, again, if I'm Mr. Bezos, given the state of computer technology, I'm not sure how much you have to have your headquarters located in a very narrow area. You you want a campus, but there'd be no reason to say you couldn't have a Hamilton campus and a Kitchener-Waterloo campus with high-speed internet connections. It wouldn't make a difference. That would be kind of an interesting thing to throw at them. Again, we have no rationale from Amazon whether that'd be an acceptable bid or not.
1: Well, I mean, there's already some partnerships developing between McMaster, for instance, and mm-hmm. the Innovation Park and, and Waterloo, mm-hmm. uh, and some shared technologies. And they've already talked about doing some cooperative things uh, to try to entice business and to try to entice some of that expertise. But I guess the other thing, though, is, is and you touched on this briefly, uh, but I think it's it's probably the wild card here. Is incentives uh, an awful lot of American jurisdictions say, you "See that land over there? That's yours. You can have it. It's free." Uh, as a matter of fact, we'll build the infrastructure for you too if you relocate here, and that's how they've attracted an awful lot of manufacturing, car plants, and things like that. We don't do that much here in Ontario. As a matter of fact, we rarely do it at all unless the provincial government does it on our behalf. But well, I don't think that's going to happen, though, because how- why would why would a provincial or federal government say, yeah, we're going to help you out, Hamilton, when cities like Toronto and others, including even Ottawa, I know, are expressing an interest in this.
0: Yeah, let, well, let me play this game slightly differently and say that uh, by law, cities really can't do any no, of this. No, but you know, provinces
1: can. Provinces
0: and, and the federal government can. And I would think the province and the federal government are interested in having a tech hub like Amazon in Canada. So I think they would get behind a bit. If we, if we were down to one of the 10 finalists on the bachelor, so to speak, and we needed an extra incentive to get a rose, I think they'd get behind that. Now, you mentioned Ottawa. Ottawa would have an easier time bidding for this than we would. A, it's over a million people all Already, and, B, it already has a, a technology presence with people like Correll, for instance, in yeah, that area. Yeah. Um, but if, if for whatever reason they didn't make the short list and the Hamilton, we'll call it the Hamilton, Kitchener, Waterloo bid did, I think the province and the federal government would be there because they would like like to have these businesses here. But nonetheless, even those incentives that our federal government and province tend to give businesses, they also tend to be a lot less than what we see south of the border in the United States. In fact, I can argue, Bill, that south of the border, they almost give the farm away, that while there's jobs to an area, and that's great in terms of the wealth of a community, they really don't get much out of this. They give away the land, as you pointed out, but they also will waive taxes for a long time. That's nice, but then how do you build that infrastructure? Who's paying for that infrastructure? Are you actually transferring the cost of the the company to the private citizen We already see some of those problems here in Hamilton. We don't want to exacerbate them.
1: Got about a minute and a half left. Let me ask you about the wild card then, Uh, the individual in the White House uh, with NAFTA negotiations and jobs in America, et cetera, et cetera. If uh, Amazon were to announce, yeah, we're going to build a second office in Canada, I, I can't see that going over well there anyway. Fair enough, uh, although on the other side of that coin, Mr. Bezos is not the biggest fan of Mr.
0: Trump, and so I could uh, see it the other way around, where Mr. Bezos might award it to Canada, or heaven forbid, even to some place in Mexico, just to thumb up a nose to to Mr. Trump and say, you see, I don't really care what you think. In fact, some of these companies, whether it's Microsoft, Amazon, Google, in a way they are bigger than any one political jurisdiction. And and. There are many of your listeners who actually worry about this, corporations that are bigger than countries who can thumb their nose at countries and drag them around. uh, Amazon would be one of those. And as I say, Mr. Bezos and Mr. Trump are not good friends.
1: Yeah, if I, Donald Trump said to Bezos, I'm going to t- bring you to your knees, you get in line. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, others have tried, I know. Uh, thanks so, so much, Marvin, for the perspective on this. Really appreciate the time My pleasure. today. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: It was uh, remarkable, uh, to say the least, uh, to watch the pictures over the weekend of uh, Hurricane Irma as uh, it made landfall in Florida. Of course, we saw the devastation in the Caribbean and the, the numbers there, and that's frightening in and of itself. And uh, the concern, obviously, was where was it going to track in Florida? What was it going to hit? What kind of damage was it going to inflict? And, uh, well, it's extensive, to say the least. Uh, it has uh, now been downgraded to a tropical storm, but, uh, listen, we won't soon forget the pictures of Miami and uh, Naples, Florida, and many other places that are being impacted and are still being impacted by uh, this storm that has caused so much damage. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Athena Masson, who is a Ph.D. candidate in environmental science at the University of Toronto, who is actually down in Florida right now. Athena, thank you so much for joining us today. Under very trying circumstances, I understand.
2: <laughs> yes, it's quite a wild ride, to say the least, right now.
1: Well, as uh, as I was explaining to our listeners just a few minutes ago, when you were talking to our technical producer, Liz Russell, earlier this morning to uh, to... Uh, try to find a time that you could be there i guess your, your house was actually being ripped apart as you were talking to us
2: yes uh right when you guys were calling me is that we lost part of the porch roof and now uh we have two sections left but another one is just just starting to peel back so there goes part of the roof and then in the meantime we have storm surge that is still five to six feet in this area and just splashing the on the back side of the house right now. So, yeah, you, you pretty much caught me at the best part of this. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it's, this being uh, St. Augustine, of course, uh, up in the northern uh, west northwestern part, I guess, of, of the state. Uh, did you think when you saw the storm and you saw the reports, Athena, that, that it was going to have the impact in your community that it, it was having down in the Keys, or were, did, was the hope that it was going to blow itself out? I guess that was never going to happen that quickly, though.
2: Yeah, and this has been a very complicated storm to forecast clear across the board is that we knew as being in the northeast of Florida that by the time hurricanes reach our area, typically they're on the weak side. But this was a different situation, and a lot of us are comparing it to Matthew, whereas Matthew came up the east coast, Irma now is coming up the west coast. Now, this poses more of a wind problem to us as opposed to the storm surge problem that we saw last year with Matthew. But what's very deadly about Irma is that regardless of her strength right now, this Cat 1 or even tropical storm right now, is that we're in that northeast quadrant, so the northeast part of the eye wall, which has all of these very powerful winds and hurricane-force gusts still, and this is why we're seeing wind-type damage right now.
1: That's a bit of a misnomer when we keep hearing about uh, it started off as a cat five, obviously, and was downgraded just before it hit uh, landfall yesterday morning. Uh, and now we're they're, they're calling it, of course, a tropical storm. It's been downgraded even from a cat one. Uh, but to, to suggest that it's I, I mean, technically, it is weaker. Obviously, we understand that from cat five down to this, but still devastating winds, aren't there?
2: Yes, and uh, this is part of my research that I'm trying to develop a new hurricane scale to better assess a hurricane that's approaching. Because yes, we could say that it's tropical storm status right now, but if you take a look outside, we're we're still seeing stuff that you would imagine of being a hurricane. And this is because right now we're only using wind as the only component to determine the strength of a hurricane. And really, there's so much more. As all of South Florida saw, it's not just the wind. It's the storm surge, the flooding, even the rain.
1: Which uh, we saw evidence of yesterday with some of the pictures from Naples and Fort Myers, and even in Miami, uh, where uh, I guess at first blush we thought, well, I guess Miami's been spared because the eye of the hurricane's going up the west coast. But when we saw the amount of rainfall that fell in Miami and the flooding and the surge as a result of that, that was just incredible.
2: It was incredible, and a lot of people don't realize is that it's not just the eye or the eye wall that we should be concerned about, that Irma is a huge hurricane that took up way more than the state of Florida. So regardless of if it went up the west coast or if it went up the east coast, is that it's not just South Florida's storm or the west coast of Florida's storm. It's all of Florida's storm, and Miami's perfect proof right there is that True Irma made landfall in the Naples area, but Miami extreme damage across the board with surge and especially with wind damage.
1: How do you requalify and maybe recategorize uh, these? I mean, how old is, are, is the data and the criterion that we're using right now, Athena, to try to 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 I guess get a clearer picture as to how ferocious uh, these storms are.
2: Well, we, we currently use the e. Saffir-Simpson Wind mm-hmm. Scale, and it's undergone a few changes throughout its lifetime. It was, in, it was introduced to the public back in 1973, I believe. And then by 2012 is that they recategorized some of the categories, but it only ever focused on wind. They took out storm surge and pressure back in 2010 and the 2011 years. But this is kind of a little mistake though, is that we have proven it's not wind that's the most deadly component. It is, in fact, storm surge and flooding a very close second because of the storm surge. So at this point, it says scientists, meteorologists, we know that there needs to be a change in the scale, but it's very hard to do so. This might be because of technology issues, or probably even more important is that the public is used to hearing Cat 1 to Cat 5 and relating it to wind. So how do you change the public's mind into believing this is how we categorize something based on something more than wind? But regardless, is that wind is definitely a a necessary component, but we do need to include more components, maybe even bring back pressure and storm surge that was originally in the scale.
1: Well, especially with what we saw with Harvey in in the Houston area just a week or so ago as well. I guess uh, when you look at that, I mean, it was a ferocious wind, obviously, but, I mean, the fact that the rain just kept coming and coming and coming, uh, there's the surge plus the rainfall and the flooding that resulted in that, and that doesn't get captured by wind speed, does it?
2: No, it doesn't at all. Is that Harvey came ashore at Cat 4 near the Rockport, Texas area, and sure, that place looked like a tornado went through because of the intense winds, but then the, the majority of Harvey's life over land was Cat 1 in tropical storm status, And that's when it became the most deadly because it stalled over the Houston metropolitan area. It dumped feet of rain. Now we're not even talking millimeters or inches anymore. We're talking feet. And this is what caused the majority of the fatalities. And it wasn't the wind. We had, I believe, one death associated to the wind. The rest were flooding. And this brings it back to what are we doing? We really should be looking at other components for this scale and to warn the public, because wind is not capturing the full strength of these hurricanes.
1: Uh, we did have notice about this, obviously, but uh, and and I know that the governor and, and state authorities uh, were trying to alarm people, or alert people rather to, to the alarming activities that were going on. Uh, we were told that about 6.4 million people were asked to evacuate the areas. Uh, that's a monumental task, somewhat suggested impossible task. Many people decided to just ride it out. Uh, either by choice or by design. I mean, not everybody could get away. Uh, it's it's a lifestyle. I mean, as you mentioned, you were talking about Matthew, now Irma, uh, and the ferocity of these storms seems to be increasing right now. This, is, this has got to be something that weighs on the people that live down there and have to accept that this is part of their life, whether they like it or not.
2: It's very true. And uh, what's very sad about the past few years is that Florida, in particular, has been in a hurricane drought, a major hurricane drought, and this was slightly broken from Hurricane Matthew last year, even though Matthew did not make a direct landfall. But now with now with Irma is that this is the wake up call for everyone, is that the major hurricane drought is over. Florida does get intense major hurricanes. It was just a fluke and an exception that we've been going for such a long extended amount of period without one. The last one was Hurricane Wilma in two thousand and five. And since then, population has boomed, especially in South Florida. So when they started doing the evacuations, this is what had my area concerned, is that all of South Florida now being displaced up into North Florida, then when we got the evacuation orders, it was kind of too late for us because there's only one way out of Florida. You have to drive northward, and then you can spread out after you reach Georgia. But I-95, I-75... I four, all the main routes out of Florida completely bumper to bumper with some averages of people only going about fifteen miles per hour. And people just chose that's not safe. I would rather be in my home riding out the storm than to be out on the road and possibly trapped in this storm, let alone in my area. We went out two, three days ago to try and find gas to at least maybe get us out if we need to, and we couldn't find gas anywhere. It's a really different and serious situation with Irma this time.
1: Well, and what exacerbated that we heard these reports over the weekend is uh, is when the alert went out for the evacuation in South Florida. Many people went up to your area, uh, figuring, okay, it's it's yeah, we're still going to get rain, but it's not going to be as bad by the time it it gets up to St. Augustine and places like that. Well, it was obviously uh, it had been downgraded, but still, you look at the effects it had on on your community and your house, for that matter. Uh, where do you go? So in other words, when your evacuation went order, it was almost like double the number of people all of a sudden. Okay, keep moving north now.
2: Exactly. So the, the, my area completely booked with shelters, hotels, and this was because South Florida, South Floridians were now being displaced up into these areas. By the time our evacuation order came, many of us couldn't even get into a shelter, couldn't even find the gas to get out of our area, and it was just hunkering down. And not, not really the best situation for us, but also is that South Florida thought, okay, we could just go up a little bit or go inland a little bit and we'll be safe. And that's not the case, is that we're staring down a hurricane that's the size of Florida, regardless of if the eye impacts land and then goes ashore and goes inland, is that those winds and water and the size of the surge is still being maintained across all of Florida. So if you really wanted to get completely away from this event, you would have had to go up into the Georgia area or even Alabama, as some of my neighbors around here have been doing.
1: Athena, thank you so much for taking the time under very uh, stressful situations, obviously, looking after your own property and what's going on in your community this well. Stay safe, and uh, hopefully you can recover from this, and we really do appreciate you taking the time and uh, lending your expertise to this. Thanks for this today.
2: Oh, thank you. Glad the communication could hold up.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Thanks again. Athena Maslin, of course, is a a PhD candidate at University of Toronto, but she's right down in St. Augustine, Florida right now. And uh, as I say, her roof is just ripped to pieces right now. Joining us now is uh, to uh, give us some perspective on this is uh, John Jackman, who is a, uh, a professor atmospheric and oceanic sciences at McGill University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good to be here. I'm going to ask you the most blunt question here because I watched the coverage over the weekend. I, I mean, I was tuning channel surfing to NBC, CNN, and and all the coverages that were being. Uh, I just you know they were inundating us. Why is there no talk about climate change in this? I mean, we're talking about the ferocity of this storm, and and that was self-evident by by looking at the videos of the things that we saw. But the ferocity of these storms, the frequency of these storms, seems to me to indicate that maybe we should be having that discussion. That doesn't seem to be going on.
3: Well, I think a discussion about climate change is appropriate, but I think it is important to put this into perspective. There have been historically some uh even more intense hurricanes making landfall. Labor Day 1935, Florida Keys, that was a category 5.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh Hurricane Camille in 1969 and Hurricane Andrew in 1992. So, in in the context here, it was a category 4 landfall yesterday morning in the Keys. However, um, I think what can be said with respect to climate change, a couple things. First, sea level has been rising and even a similarly sized and strong storm is going to have a much greater impact today than it was 30, 40 years ago because of the rise in sea level. Uh, second, the oceans are warming, the air is warming, and that actually facilitates the production of more extreme hurricanes. So, what we've been observing this year, in particular, the unprecedented landfalls of two Category 4 uh, hurricanes, being Harvey in Texas a few weeks ago and now Irma in the Florida Keys yesterday morning, is that we have an unusual situation, and I think it's more likely that we will be having more strong hurricanes in the future. So that's where the climate change issue comes into play. Uh, Again, uh, I think as far as the intensity and the size, for example, of this hurricane is concerned, it's not unprecedented. What is unusual is the... uh, the extent of landfalling hurricanes that we've had this year, and that's sort of a, a random process.
1: Yeah, it just seems that, and I'm just doing that off the top of my head anecdotally, that uh, we hear about the Andrews and, and the other ones that have gone on, or Matthew, and you say, well, that was just terrible. Uh, and then some weeks pass. It just seems as if this is like, I, I used the analogy the other day, it's almost like standing over at uh, at uh, Trudeau Airport and just watching the planes come in one after another. The, you know, that seems to be the hurricane uh, frequency these days. I mean, you know, we, we've had, as you mentioned, there was Harvey, and then all of a sudden we're dealing with what's going on right now with Irma, and Jorge is, is uh, starting to move toward the Caribbean, and Katya is out there someplace too. It, it just seems to be uh, the the frequency, I guess, that, that should probably be of great concern to us at this stage.
3: It is. Um, again, if we go back to 2005, however, that was uh, a record-breaking season in terms of the numbers of hurricanes. That was the year that Katrina uh, impacted New Orleans. And during that year, uh, we actually ran out of the alphabet and had to go into uh, the Greek lettering system into December and January. There were so many hurricanes. But I think the distinction, again, is... Um, the impacts, uh, many of the, the hurricanes that we had in 2005 did not make landfall. Um, and so in terms of the activity, the sheer numbers of hurricanes, that actually has not changed over the, over, over the past several decades. What, has, what seems to be happening is the frequency, the numbers of intense or strong hurricanes being Category 3 four or five. And that's been uh, predicted by the climate models and seems to be validated by the observational data.
1: In our uh, conversation with our previous guest, John, just before we joined us, Athena Masson, who's a PhD candidate at U of T. She was, uh, she's down in St. Augustine. She was talking about uh, the work that she's doing down there. And it was an assessment about reevaluating how we categorize hurricanes. Uh, and obviously uh, the, the, this, this Cat 1, Cat 2, etc. is is based to a great extent, of course, on on wind speed as opposed to some of the other factors. And now we're starting to talk about things like storm surge. And I know that those aren't new, but they seem to be uh, things that are maybe more front of mind than they have been in the past.
3: Yeah, well, the classifier, the classifying system can be very, very misleading. Um, I did hear your guest speak about For example, the size of the uh, hurricane, it's unusually large, but again, it's not unprecedented. And I think what people do not realize is that 90% of of the uh, fatalities that occur in hurricanes are due to uh, drownings in storm surges. Mm -hmm. So the storm surge issue is a huge issue here, particularly for Irma, because even though the center right now is in uh, west-northwest Florida, the impacts are being felt Over a huge area. Right now, I'm looking at the Hurricane Center map of tropical storm force winds, and they actually extend all the way up to the South Carolina, North Carolina border. And so, this is the danger of storm surge to many of these communities is very real. And people might say, oh, well, you know, it's downgraded to a tropical storm. We don't have to worry about this. But the fact is that the extent of the onshore or easterly winds along coastal areas of the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, it's incredible. It's a very large extent and it's very, very dangerous. So people should not be misled by the fact that we've had a downgrade to a tropical storm status. The winds themselves are extending far out, and the long duration and direction of the wind is having a big impact on coastal areas with heavy rains and a, stor- a dangerous storm surge.
1: Frightening pictures, and uh, as as uh, you and our previous guests have told us, too, uh, there's still a lot to come in this storm before it uh, does blow itself out.
3: Uh, absolutely.
1: John, thank you so much for the time today. It was great having you on the program. My pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor John Jackman, of course, Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at McGill University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Closer to home, the Ontario Legislature resumes today for the uh, the fall sitting. Uh, And uh, it's going to be a hard-hitting session. I mean, the government obviously wants to move forward on their minimum wage legislation. Uh, There's the uh, pot legislation, of course, the legalization of marijuana and how it's going to be dispensed. And uh, some changes to the Police Act, a lot going on. And, hey, by the way, there's an election schedule for next June here in Ontario, too. And don't think that's not on their minds. Joining us to talk about the agenda and what might happen uh, during this session is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, how are you doing this morning? Uh, good morning, Bill. I'm fine. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the road ahead, I guess. Uh, first of all, maybe for the government and the agenda. Uh, some suggesting it's rather aggressive, but governments tend to do that when they're trying to, I guess, chalk up some wins uh, you know before an election like this.
4: Yeah, look, as you've already laid out, the uh, this session is going to be about posturing. Uh, there will be real legislation put forward, and again, minimum wage is certainly an example of that. <clears throat> but more than anything, I think it's sort of um, burnishing the their party's own image and trying to tarnish the other party's image. And we've certainly seen some movement. You know, uh, goodness, uh, six, eight months ago, uh, it seemed that the liberals were, were totally lost. They're still behind. In public opinion polls, but uh, things have tightened up significantly. And indeed, the ability of Kathleen Wynne, I think, to try to define Patrick Brown and the Conservatives is going to have an awful lot to do with what's going on in the um, in the legislature. Uh, also, the fact that she's moving uh, well, ever ever leftward in terms of trying to uh, move into taking n d p votes again to try to keep herself in power uh... But something i wouldn't have anticipated again six months ago the um, I, I think the next election may very well be a toss-up if i was putting betting odds on it i'd still give the conservatives a bit of an advantage but uh... polls some polls have shown it even less than five percent margin uh, in general it's certainly about six seven percent margin um, and indeed, momentum is, is with the liberals, and it's partly because of the fact that Patrick Brown has not yet really been able to define himself with a you know, firm image as an alternative to the liberals.
1: Let me ask you about the the motive and maybe the the, the focus on what's going on right now. It, it just seems to me, and and this upcoming election, Barry, I think is going to be a great example of that, but we've seen this with the U.S. elections and probably to an extent the last federal election here, too, where personality seems to, to, to be more of a priority than policy. It's it's like you say, defining your opponent, defining yourself, uh, and, and policy almost seems to take the back seat to that.
4: Policy helps, but yeah, defining the personalities. And again, Patrick Brown does not have a particularly strong image. Ironically, the most popular of the three leaders is Andrew Horvath, but that has not been able to translate into it's it, it helped the party a bit, but it has not been able to sort of dominate um, the uh, the mind of Ontario voters to put to put her party first. The the Liberal Party image in general polls suggest is actually stronger than Kathleen Wynne. Kathleen Wynne is a drag, so she'll very much try to advocate a team approach. The problem the Liberals have is that indeed they've been in power now. It'll be uh, next year. It'll be fifteen years, and in the normal cycle of these things, <clears throat> excuse me. The, um, the governing parties usually get two terms and then they're out. That's the way it normally works in politics, not always. Uh, this is going to now be virtually four terms for the Liberals. And indeed, time for a change is, is a challenge the Liberals have working against them. And they're gonna, that's partly the, why, or the reason that they've put forward so many different policy proposals to try to, to camouflage that. Kathleen Wynne is not popular. Um, there is a sense that it's time for a change. But if the liberals can tarnish the uh, conservative image sufficiently, who knows? Anything's possible.
1: How difficult is it for any political party? Obviously, we're talking about the liberals and Kathleen Wynne right now. But, but for a party that's outpolling their leader like that uh, to be successful, can people ignore the fact that they don't like the person that's at the helm?
4: Oh, if they some can, and that's sort of the. I don't. Again, in putting this into perspective, I would still. Give the Conservatives an edge in terms of the overall situation. I think their likelihood of having the most seats at the next election is greater than anyone else's at the moment. Um, But yeah, the um, the party the party campaign is geared less around Kathleen Wynne and more around a team approach. I wouldn't be surprised if Justin Trudeau might show up at the odd time because he's still fairly popular in the province of Ontario. There's another factor that helps the Liberals, and that is redistribution. Um, There are going to be some new seats, and that. those seats are going to be largely um, placed in positions where the, the Liberals do better, perverse, particularly urban Ontario, especially GTA, although we've got new seats in uh, in the uh, the Kitchener-Waterloo and the Hamilton area as well. But by and large, they're in the GTA. And by and large, the GTA is an area where Liberals normally do better. A lot of them aren't necessarily right in the old city of Toronto, but rather in Mississauga and York region and so forth in the areas around it, also including um, you know moving into the Halton region. But um, all of those things suggest that the Liberals have a shot. At, look, you know, if I was making a prediction right now, I wouldn't be surprised if we're heading for minority government. But lots of things can happen between now and next
1: June. What about this agenda then? I mean, I, we're just saying that policy doesn't always uh, take the, the the priority here. But I mean, let's let's talk about some of the things they want to move on. Uh, there's been a lot of pushback about the minimum wage announcements uh, that they made earlier this year, Barry. And um, we've talked to Chambers of Commerce. I know you have followed the story up in KW as well, and. Uh, and I know that you can look skeptically at this, you know, when the CEO from some of the grocery chains starts talking about how it's going to have an impact on them. You know, you think, you're like, okay, that's a little disingenuous. But uh, there are some legitimate concerns, I think, with small business. The government says they're going to address those, uh, which, which I find interesting. But aside from the, the the opposition, if I can phrase it that way, from small business, that whole idea, the whole concept from the polls I've seen seems to actually resonate with Ontario voters. They like it.
4: Look, there are more people who are potentially employees of these businesses than there are owners. Any policy is going to have winners and losers relatively, and indeed, if the requirement to pay your employees more is going to uh, affect your your profit level, obviously there's going to be a you know a, a, a push against it at that level. I think there's more potential winners than losers in terms of the actual the actual number of voters, however. Um, uh, and indeed, I, the, the, look, the government can do some things with regard to tax breaks and advantages to, to help business, at least to talk about advantages in that way. Uh, they've got a much broader agenda. I think pharmacare is a huge, um, a huge policy potential, and that's one that could very much encroach and eat into NDP support because that's a, a an idea of more government social programs is something that would normally was uh, something we would see from the left. They're talking about um, hydro rates. Of course, that's already some of that's already come into place. Um, there are other issues, however, which have resonated with ontario voters um the h- housing prices in Toronto and I guess to uh, a somewhat lesser extent, but not that much lesser extent in the hamilton area too are horrendous mm-hmm. they 've come down a bit and they 're they're, they're taxing um foreign buyers and we 've seen a a kind of ending to the increase in prices and, um, but all all of these uh transportation um there are issues that can resonate with Ontario voters if they're pitched correctly. Housing is one, health care is another. Um, transportation, just getting in and out of the the big urban centers is a huge problem and if those are marketed effectively and I'm sure all the parties are thinking about this, if they can be marketed effectively uh with with various programs, those are issues that could yet bubble up during the legislative session, which is what we're really talking about, and then the campaign that's coming at the end of the spring.
1: Barry, you guys have already gone through your LRT debate up in uh, in KW, and uh, we're I think we're sort of near the end of ours, although one never knows. I mean, it's just one step forward and two steps back in this situation but but again that that goes to your point about transportation and uh, it just seems that the government in the last year and a half especially seems to figure that look at this may well be won or lost in the GTA and and let's focus on what they like and what they need and transportation seems to be one of the main priorities there
4: yeah uh, look people coming in again it's not so much downtown Toronto um, that is in play uh, that area is going to go mostly liberal and there's some NDP seats um, as well um, it, but it's in the um, uh it's particularly in suburban and indeed even exurban Toronto but as we're getting into Mississauga on the west York region on the north into Durham region toward Oshawa on the east uh that's where the growth is that's where in fact there are new ridings significant number of new ridings that weren't there in the last uh, the last provincial election and those people are commuters they don't all have to go into downtown Toronto but yes, I think uh, if I was advising the Conservatives, I'm not sure what they have up their sleeves. I haven't heard, of, they haven't talked a whole lot about their policy proposals for the next election. But those are issues that can resonate anything that will make it easier for people to have access to their jobs and spend less time in traffic. Even uh, just driving in from um, Waterloo to Toronto, which I do uh, not infrequently, um, the, the, there's just no good time of day unless you go in the dead of night um, in terms of, of getting into town. Those are issues that can affect the the public voter, in the sense that they, that um, they their their life could be improved a little bit, and if I was advising the conservatives, I guess that's the kind of area where I would try to um, come up with something to suggest that the liberals have dropped the ball and not been effective.
1: Is there a risk uh, with the Patrick Brown and the progressive conservatives right now that they may come too late to the party with policy? Uh, notwithstanding the fact that personality, uh, as I say, is a priority here. But uh, there there are those that would criticize Patrick Brown and say, well, he's he's not really the most magnetic personality, nor is Kathleen Wynne. Uh, so that may be a wash as far as that's concerned. But th- this, th- they seem to be waiting an awfully long time to come out with a policy book. And successful governments that have overthrown sitting governments, and Mike Harris comes to mind, obviously, back with his Common Sense Revolution, uh came out at least a year before that election so basically people could could swallow it and 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 I guess get some sense of what's going on here uh but it's going to be awfully tight between the time the conservatives finally announce some policy and the time for people can actually digest it
4: yeah they, they know that uh they they could have um they could have come up with their proposals already look pat patrick brown was a backbencher in uh, in the federal government under harper as well so he wasn't seen by Harper, at least, as being one of the particular you know, big, large political lights uh, at that time. Um, I think what we will probably see during the campaign is the liberals basically going after Brown and defining him, and on the part of the conservatives going after Wynn, so it'll be a very negative campaign. And I don't think Wynne is going to promote herself so much as perhaps try to uh, to promote the Liberal team and the Liberal name, which federally, remember, still has a fairly positive uh, a positive image as well. And sometimes there's carryover from the the party image federally to the party image provincially. Um, I think the Conservatives could have done a better job, and that we've seen we've seen slippage in the polls um, from something close to a twenty point lead not that many months ago. We're now talking we're down into the single digits, and again, momentum means something. In public opinion, um, things are slipping away from the conservatives. Frankly, I think right now, the conservatives should be coming out with ideas that, in fact, they can then develop and 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 prom- continue to promote between now and next June. And if again, if I was advising them, I would think that would be the, the smart move. But we'll see. They've got their own advisors They don't have reason to listen to me. And uh, we'll see how it goes. I don't think they have handled this period particularly well. If we remember. Um, in the last goodness, almost every election—not in three so much, but in almost every election since—the conservatives were positioned for one reason or another to do fairly well and then drop the ball. Whether it was uh, John Tory with regard to the religious school issue, or some of the comments that were made by Hudak in '07 and uh, excuse me, '11 and '14 and about about immigrants and so forth and firing civil servants, the conservatives were in a position—if not to win—it certainly made each of those elections very close. And they've blown it at least the last three times. We'll see. So far, um, people shouldn't be unduly impressed with Brown, but he's still leading in the polls. And as I say, if I was betting money at the moment, I think one would have to sort of suggest the odds are more toward the conservatives coming first than than not. But if their lead is down in the range of three, four, five points, it's not at all clear. and And things might change between now and June. It's not at all clear that they're going to have a majority government, or maybe even the largest number of seats.
1: Barry, I, I agree with your assertion. By the way, that uh, that you know this is going to get be get pretty down and dirty, and obviously it's going to get very personal. But the leaders, especially, how much uh, if and any is is this uh, the, the two trials that are ongoing right now? Uh, the elections act charges up in Sudbury, and of course, and and it's still that gas plant thing, the breach of trust thing. Uh, that seems to be, never want to go away right now. Uh, have people moved on from that, uh, or, or is this going to be a factor? Again, I, I'm, I guess, I'm guessing the opposition parties are going to try to cling to this.
4: Well, I'm sure they will. Um, I would think that if um, – I, I, I don't think they're going to be all that. If they, if they don't help the liberals. These are, are um, events, though, that largely occur during – well, certainly the first one, uh, the, the McGinty years. Um, uh, the, the, the second one, the, the, Sudbury, the Sudbury trial is pretty local stuff. I would think that it may have an impact in that riding. Uh, I do not think it's going to resonate widely uh, beyond that. I don't think the main knock on Kathleen Wynne is that she's corrupt, although some may, may feel that as well. I think it's just sort of a matter of incompetence and that it's time, to, uh, it's time for a change. If there's resentment towards her, it's that. I think she has come out with all these various policy proposals to try to distract people from that, and maybe that's what's working. Uh, because, again, momentum does seem to be the Liberals are very much edging back into a very um, a very competitive race. Uh, in general, I do not think that either of those trials is probably going to have a huge impact on the election. Uh,
1: I mean, is, is it a situation of it's that, well, them that don't like the Liberals are just going to love this stuff, uh, them that haven't made up their mind really don't think that's a factor? Is that how they're going to view this?
4: Oh, I think the election is in play. Um, I don't want to suggest that anything is over, and the fact that we've seen, I, I wouldn't have anticipated six months ago, as I say, the, um, the momentum away from the Conservatives to the the liberals now. I just don't think that those trials are probably that the notion that they're going to stick um, Kathleen Wynne with the uh, the, uh, the, the the corruption of, that occurred back under the uh, McGuinty era. I don't think that's largely going to be the a factor that's going to swing a lot of votes. I think there are factors that could swing votes. I think if people feel that the conservatives have a plan for transit or home ownership that is going to make their lives easier, those are certainly avenues that um, the conservatives would be would be recommended to pursue. Um, we'll see. Again, you're asking me, with regard to the trials, I don't think they're going to be a big deal come June.
1: Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilford Laurier. Barry, thanks as always. Great talking to you again Happy today. Happy
4: to talk to you. Bye-bye now. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.